So to kick off uh, Christ Culture and Communion this morning, um, I'm going to take just a few minutes to talk about culture and education, um, church, education, and uh, this is just one little snippet. Um, that's something I was thinking about about a week ago in regards to education and teaching. Um, I have a degree uh, in education and a degree in biblical studies, and so just thinking back on all that stuff and then how it relates to church today and how uh, education has maybe um, influenced uh, church today and maybe I'd say the oversaturation of of education and the pursuit of learning and knowledge has inf- uh, influenced uh, church today, specifically in the United States. Um, and this is a lot of numbers, so it's going to be kind of kind of quick. So, education in America, um, specifically the amount of hours of teaching in a school that's required uh, national standards and state standards uh, today. So, K through twelve to receive a general education degree. Um, the average, Pennsylvania is actually a little bit higher uh, hours per day, but about the average hours per day of teaching is 6.6 hours a day, and that's uh, there's 180 days in the school year. And if you take uh, 6.64 hours uh, times five, Monday through Friday, that's about 33 hours a week, and roughly 1,195 hours a year of teaching within the public schools K through 12, so you take 12 years, that equals 14,342 hours to just get to the point where society will say, okay, you have a diploma, now go get more education. And uh, 14,342 hours, so we'll keep that in mind. So coming over into church, you know, I was thinking about how, how do we educate, you know, in church. One of the things that we're devoted to uh, that Acts tells us, uh, chapter 2, verse 42, is we have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And there's three other ones, prayer, the breaking of bread, and fellowship. So teaching and educating is needed within the church. But how in the world do we get these numbers? There's so much to teach. Um, so I took some uh, some numbers I thought I was pretty gracious with. So I would say a Sunday morning sermon, 40 minutes. Let's say do Sunday school, which is another 30 minutes. And you'll do a weekly Bible study, 30 minutes. All these are uh, things that the Church Institute has established, so you'll be learning. These are the average numbers that you're learning if you're requiring the church, the church leaders, um, the Church Institute to teach you. You have uh, roughly 1.6 hours a week. Um, this is outside of any you know personal time of being fed. This is just relying on the church to be educated. That's 83 hours a year. Um, 83 hours a year is roughly 2.5 weeks in the public school. So um, we have a bit of a problem uh, here. And this is, you know, the culture and education, how I think uh, this stuff has been, you know, culture has affected church and maybe the way we we do a few things. So if you were to get 14,432 hours Within the church, that would take you 172 years if you did Sunday morning, Sunday school, and a weekly Bible study. Um, this creates a lot of problems if we're relying on the church uh, to educate us. And uh, it was fun throwing the numbers together, but it made me think about a few other things, too. With the 172 years, just to get to the point of the um, equivalent of a K-12 you know, education, um, 
how much of like generations relying on the church to educate never really fully grasp the full picture. And so when that generation steps into leadership, then they maybe create another church that emphasizes something else and then it's not the full picture and then emphasizes something else and that's not the full picture. So you end up, you know, with maybe a lot of denominations. Uh, in the year 1900, there was roughly 1,600 denominations worldwide. These are just studies by seminaries that are done across the world. And then in, so 1,600 denominations, and then in the year 2012, there's an estimated number of 40,000 denominations worldwide. And uh, that's planned to go up to like 60,000 in the next um, 15 years. And uh, yeah, I just want to leave that with us just to think about. It's kind of how I think, you know, teaching is important. The, the church is, is supposed to teach. And um, these are just some numbers that I ran in my head and how education and the church and how they've influenced each other in that culture. So I'm going to toss it over to Josh as we continue to move forward. Yeah, so as we go into, like, um, Christ's culture and communion, um, and, you know, Corey just kind of shared, like, this one snippet of, like, how culture fits. You know, pragmatically, you can see over generations, we've tried to um, adapt to how culture in- influences and communicates education. And so, like, you'll see, you know, like, there's homeschool options, there's Christian school options, um, there's cyber school and different things like that. Um, and so you can see how, like, how our our faith tries to influence that um and you know it's not actually about the right or wrong way in that it's just about um you know like how does christ influence that you know how does christ engage that um one picture that kind of came to mind as i was thinking about this was in in john chapter 13 um because you know this morning our real our our focus is to like bring us to the communion table. Our focus is to end our time together with bread and cup. So that way, like, we understand, like, what we have at the end of the day and the beginning of the day and in the middle of the day is Christ. Like, and that's where we are. And so um, this picture came in terms of thinking about it uh, was in John chapter 13 when um, Jesus is preparing to wash the disciples' feet. And in Luke, actually, the Gospel of Luke, it talks about... um, Shortly after Luke's narrative around the Last Supper, um, he talks about an argument come, building within the disciples about who is the greatest. Now, whether that argument got started between the disciples because they knew they needed to wash, someone needed to wash each other's feet, or um, and and so then like that stirred the argument, and so then Jesus stepped in. I don't know, or you know, I don't even know if the argument was even prompted by the washing of the feet for the disciples. But it's just interesting that um, in this moment, right, the disciples are debating um, who who is the greatest when there is this cultural um, dynamic going on around washing of feet, and so. Probably familiar, but in um, John chapter 13, he, uh, in, in terms of the feet washing, in verse 6, he says, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. 
Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. But I found it very interesting that like Peter is arguing with Jesus from a cultural perspective. This is my rabbi. This is my teacher who is going to wash my feet. Culturally, that's not appropriate. And so Peter's like, no, no, no. Like, you will not wash my feet. And then Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. If I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part of me. And then Peter, of course, he's like the pendulum. You know, he's like all or nothing kind of guy. And he's like, then wash all of me. And Jesus is very clear. He's like, no, you don't need that, right? And it's kind of equivalent. Like, if, you, if we've been baptized and we have accepted Christ in our heart, then we don't need to be saved again, right? But we do need to have something that we come into. We, knew, we do need this moment where, like, our feet are washed, where um, we come before the Lord and we um, confess and we, are for, we, you know, we repent and therefore we receive the forgiveness. Or we do come to the Lord and, and we get this intimate connection with God and that we get to be a part of him in this act of feet washing, in this act of taking communion. And, and so oftentimes I think that our, our culture, because we grew up in it, can be something that we're very accustomed to, something we're very used to. And if we don't take a moment and step outside of our culture and ask that question, how does Christ inform me in this moment? Then we can easily just go along with culture. I also find personally, I don't know if you've ever found this, but that like sometimes I'm actually arguing with God from a cultural perspective. You know, maybe I'm sensing God to lead me into to have a conversation with somebody or to act a certain way, and it feels very countercultural. And so I with, withhold or I, I don't actually walk into that. And and I think that a little bit is kind of what was going on with Peter, but then you know. He's like, well, then all of me, you know? And it's, it's like finding that balance, finding that rhythm, knowing what is the posture that Christ calls us into. And the thing that we have with us to remember this is the bread and the cup. You know, the, this whole conversation, the feet washing, happens around the, the Passover. This whole idea of Passover is very cultural. But what Christ is doing in that moment is he is actually taking something that was very cultural for the Jewish faith, and he's transforming it into something that's really powerful and goes on for centuries. And so it draws us in to this moment. It's something that we practice now because it's, it's how we get to come to the table. It's how we are sustained by the bread, the broken body, and it is how we are cleansed by the bloodshed. And uh, Corey's going to actually share more as well uh, as we come to the communion table. There's a TV show out there many of you might be aware of. It's called Undercover Boss. And what happens in that is the owner or CEO of a company goes undercover, leaves 
the office headquarters and goes to a local branch, um, just picks one that might be performing um, poorly. And so he gets uh, a complete makeover so that when he goes to um, that branch, they can't recognize that he's the owner or the, or, or the, the boss of the company. But it gives him a better idea to see um, what exactly is going on in that place, maybe why it's not doing well, or maybe why it is doing well, but he's not recognizable. So they put a disguise on him so he can really see the heart of the operation um, and not be not let the employees be influenced by who he actually is. So um, for our text, we're going to read Luke 24, if you would open up to Luke 24. To set the scene in Luke 24, this is uh, three days after the resurrect or after the death of Christ. Uh, this morning, the tomb was empty, and uh, all the quarrels begun about where Jesus is and what happened to him. And uh, we're going to start on verse 13. Let's stand for this reading. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus replied, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, It is now, the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if we were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
Father God, as we uh, read your word this morning, Father, we ask uh, for your spirit to guide and direct, uh, for your spirit to speak, for your spirit to have its way. Uh, Father, open our eyes in new ways. May we understand more deeply the meaning behind the body broken and the bloodshed. We thank you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can be seated. So Jesus does some undercover work on the road to Emmaus. <clears throat> I think one of the, my favorite things in, in reading that, because I uh, can just appreciate the sense of humor behind it, is when these guys are walking on that road, and they're talking about all these things, and they're talking about uh, what they thought was going to happen and what happened to Jesus now. And uh, then Jesus appears, but they don't know it's him. But what's interesting is their heart is revealed in this thing. And uh, Jesus comes up and says, uh, you know, you seem to be in a deep discussion about something. What are you talking about? Why are you so sad and gloomy? And, I mean, of course he knows he's Jesus. Uh, They stopped, and then, you know, Cleopas answered, haven't you heard about the things? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that's unaware of these things? And Jesus goes, what things? And I love this because he does not lower himself to the level of their question. You know, their heart has been coming out in all of this, and he wants to hear more of their heart. And so he says, what things? And, uh, you know, I wonder, I've often wondered, you know, in our time of worship, just in general, when, when, when we worship, uh, why doesn't God just show up? Why doesn't he just come up front in all of his glory and just, there he is, and... Uh, you know, because God, our, our Father, is so much about our heart. And if he were to show up in all that he is, uh, it would no longer be a voluntary response. It would be an involuntary response, and we'd all get on our face physically and worship him. And he cares so much about our heart that he wants us to choose to do it and to express it. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why God just doesn't show up, but I know this to be one of them is because it would just be an involuntary response if he were to show up during our worship. And he's just so pleased looking down on us as we look up to him smiling um, in that relationship. Um, And, you know, I love the mystery in that relationship. And so their eyes are still hidden. They still don't recognize that this is Jesus. And then they go on and spill more of their heart out to him. Um, This is a reading on um it's called the passion translation a good resource and this is uh in verse 19 what it says the things about jesus this is what they were saying the man from nazareth they replied he was a mighty prophet of god who performed miracles and wonders his words were powerful and he had great favor with god and the people but three days ago the high priests and the rulers of the people sentenced him to death and had him crucified we all hoped that he was the one who would redeem and rescue israel you see, there's, uh, Jesus enters the scene uh, in the middle of a perfect storm. A bunch of years ago, there was a movie called The Perfect Storm about a fishing boat off of the coast of New England, and it's about a storm that was coming across the United States. There was a storm coming down from Canada, and there was a hurricane coming up from the tropics, and this ship was right in the middle of these three storms. And, uh, you know, nothing was left of that ship except, a bunch of wood. And, uh, you know, for Jesus, in the time of Jesus, he's entering 
uh, at, at this perfect storm where Rome and its government is establishing a lot of power and they're taking over a lot. And uh, Israel has just a screaming anticipation that their God is supposed to deliver them and it should be any day now and we are supposed to be set free. And uh, where's this Jesus? Where's our God? Uh, how's this going to work? Um, and, you know, they pictured, well, the third storm is then we have this thread throughout uh, the Old Testament of the voice of the prophets who just always come in and say, well, actually, this is what God's saying and this is how God's going to do it. And so you think Jesus is going to come in on a, on a white horse like Caesar does in Rome and actually he's going to ride in on a donkey. And you think there's going to be some kingdom built and established and you're all going to run free in that way and instead he establishes a spiritual kingdom. And so that and the voice of the prophets is perfect storm and Jesus comes in, and uh, you'll see as we get to it the the power in the Word of God, and specifically the voice of the prophets, and how accountable Jesus makes us to the voice of the prophet. And so, uh, verse twenty-two. Early this morning, some of the women informed us of something amazing. They said they went to the tomb and found it empty. They claimed two angels appeared and told them that Jesus is now alive. Some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly like the woman said, but no one has seen him. So they just spilled their heart to Jesus, all their doubt, all their lack of faith, all their you know, forgetting all the words of the prophets that have been spoken about what Jesus was going to come and do and how he was going to do it. So Jesus replied to them, Why are you so thick-headed? Why do you find it so hard to believe every word the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary for Christ the Messiah to experience all these sufferings and then afterward to enter into his glories? So he asked, why do you find it so hard to believe every word the prophets have spoken? I read that and it brought me back to a passage in Luke chapter uh, 16 that I'm going to turn to. In Luke chapter 16, the end of that, it talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And I'm going to read it. There was a very rich man who had the finest things imaginable, living every day, enjoying his life of luxury. And outside of the gate of his mansion was a poor beggar named Lazarus. He lay there every day covered with boils, and all the neighborhood dogs would come and lick his open sores. The only food he had to eat was the garbage that the rich man threw away. One day poor Lazarus died, and the angels of God came and escorted his spirit into paradise. The day came that the rich man also died. In hell he looked up from his torment and saw Abraham in the distance, and Lazarus, the beggar, was standing beside him in the glory. So the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come to cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames of fire. And Abraham responded, my friend, don't you remember? While you were alive, you had all you desired, surrounded in luxury, while Lazarus had nothing. Now Lazarus is in the comforts of paradise, and you're in agony. Besides, between us is a huge chasm that cannot be bridged, keeping anyone from crossing from one realm to the other, even if he wanted to. So the rich man said, okay, so let me ask you then, Father Abraham, to please send Lazarus to my relatives Tell him to witness to my five brothers and warn them not to end up where I am in this place of torment. Abraham replied, they've already had enough warning. They have the teaching of Moses 
and the prophets, and they must obey them. But what if they're not listening, the rich man added. If someone from the dead were to go and warn them, they would surely repent. Abraham responded, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they believe even if someone was raised from the dead. And it brought me to that. I, I, thinking about the power of the word of the prophets and the power of the word of God being more powerful than uh, a sign, being more powerful than uh, if, if they would raise somebody from the dead, surely they would believe. And they're like, no, they won't believe. They didn't believe the word of God. They don't believe the prophets. I could raise somebody from the dead, and they're still not going to believe. Verse 27. Then he carefully unveiled to them the revelation of himself throughout the scripture. So now Jesus, they've, he's heard their heart. And uh, he's listened to them. He's told them about the power of, you know, the prophets and how they have not listened to them. And then he starts to unveil to them, again, the story of redemption. He started from the beginning and explained the writings of Moses and all the prophets, showing how they wrote of him and revealed the truth about himself. As they approached the village, Jesus walked on ahead, telling the men he was going on to a distant place. They urged him to remain there and pleaded, Stay with us. It will be dark soon. So Jesus went with them into the village. Joining them at the table for supper, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, then gave it to them. All at once, their eyes were open, and they realized it was Jesus. Then suddenly, in a flash, Jesus vanished from before their eyes. Stunned, the men looked at each other and said, Why didn't we recognize it was him? Didn't our hearts burn with the flames of holy passion while we walked beside him? He unveiled for us such profound revelation from the scriptures. I have this um, artist rendering of this uh, dinner that took place that night. Um, This is the moment where Jesus, oh, I think I have a laser. Um, Jesus, at the moment he breaks the bread, you can see the two disciples here stepping back and realizing all of a sudden when their eyes become open, and you can see Jesus uh, has glory, light around him as they actually see who he was, and he's made known through the breaking of bread. And, uh, you know, for me, communion has been, in the past couple months, as I think about it, um, taking me into a deeper place, and that might be the challenge for all of us, is, you know, especially growing up with it, what really is happening at this table, at the body broken and the blood shed, and at that place where our eyes become open. You see, at, at the resurrection, at that birth of new creation and how we remember that, you know, we no longer have to work on holding on to the earth in one hand and heaven on the other and constantly trying to pull them together to live in the right place and being tossed back and forth. Because of the resurrection, we now can live in the kingdom of God because it's been established. If you picture a bar graph, and on the left-hand side, you have Genesis 1-1, where like utopia, creation, Garden of Eden, and it's just the highest point on that bar graph. And you go to the end, of, uh, you know, Revelation and the new 
earth and then you have the, the kingdom of God and another high point. Well, what happened at the resurrection is it took all the past, all the redemptive stories and brought them up to that moment. And it took all the future and brought that back into this moment and shot the bar graph straight up. And it's from that point today in which we live because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We now can live in the new creation with him and it's seen through the bread and the cup. And, uh, you know, it's wow, a lot to, to wrap your mind around what exactly happened at the resurrection and what exactly launched forth and back at the resurrection, but it's in that point at which we stand. And, uh, you know, Jesus, the scripture says that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. And it's that which we hold on to. It's that which we behold. It's that which we, you know, worship is the life of Jesus. <laughs> N.T. Wright has this thing where he says, you know, all authority on heaven and on earth is given to Jesus, not the books all you guys are about to write. Um, and I just, I found that really fascinating too. He's talking about the disciples, you know, all the New Testament books. And, you know, it's the word of God. All authority, though, is in Jesus, both in heaven and on earth, and it's that which we stand here today and live in. And so there should be something very deep as we take the bread and the cup that um, should hit our emotions. As it hits our lips, our tongue, our throat, goes into our body, you know, it would be appropriate for us uh, to get on our knees at times during communion. And also, you know, I didn't realize this growing up, too. Communion, you know, doesn't have to only be done in church and administered by a pastor. It can be done at home with your family, around the dinner table, on vacation, on a camping trip, by yourself. Um, it doesn't have to happen on a Sunday morning. Um, but I'd encourage all of us, as we step into this next series, to really uh, evaluate the depths of the body broken and the bloodshed and what that means for us today uh, as we get ready to to partake of it. We're going to move into a time of taking the communion. So I just invite you to be, um, to take the words that spoke to you from what Corey shared and um, just to be in prayer and reflection around them. Um, I think that, you know, for us, um, coming again, uh, pulling from last week a little bit, that, that distinction between Protestant understanding of communion and Catholic understanding of communion, like there's that criticism from Protestant towards Catholicism of it being ritualistic because it's so frequent. Um, and I think in that same way, we got to ask ourselves, how has um, the bread and the cup become just symbols and not, and lost the power, lost the significance, lost the sacredness? And so we just invite, like, I think, felt the sense of just inviting us back to that, back to that sacredness. You know, like Corey shared in Luke, like the, the breaking of the bread, Christ breaking the bread 
open the eyes so that they could see and to approach communion not formally where it can't be done on a camping trip or it can't be done in that kind of a setting, but to approach it with a sacredness, with a, a reality of what it's representing and the power that is included in that um, as an expression of our worship and an expression of our relationship with God the Father. Corinthians 11, he says, he's writing, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father God, we just pray over this bread and this cup this morning, and we ask that your presence would come and, and be abiding amongst us as we partake of this act of worship. As we receive your sustenance and your cleansing power, Father. We come grateful for the sacrifice we come confessional of our unworthiness of the sacrifice. And we come overwhelmed by the love of your sacrifice. Father, may our hearts not be untouched by this act of communion. May our minds have clarity and be cleansed. Father, may our bodies just uh, be restored by the sustenance of your body broken. And as we walk away from the table, Father, Maybe, may we be reminded of our identity in you. May we walk away having partook of this sacrifice and aware of your presence. Eyes open that we may see as Father, you seek us to see.